Minimum data set changes are coming. A conversation with Deborah Wright. This webinar included a visual PowerPoint presentation. To view a video recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared towards long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Casey Stevens and I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights. Today we'll be discussing the minimum data set MDS changes are coming. And now I'd like to introduce our guest speaker today, Deborah Wright. Deborah is a quality improvement specialist here at Quality Insights. She joined our team after being in the long-term care industry for more than 30 years. She has a wealth of experience in long-term care and long-term care nursing and management, ranging from certified nursing assistant to vice president of healthcare operations. She's most passionate when working with the MDS process in quality improvement. Deb, thanks for joining us today, and I'll let you take it from here. All right. So hopefully by this point, all know that the MDS is changing um, October 1st. So my goal is not to be instructing you on how to complete the MDS. Our goal over these next couple of weeks is just to draw your attention to what is changing within the MDS and then um, answer any questions that you have. So the first couple slides will be the same every week, just in case we have different people joining us. So the first um, slide here has the links to the MDS forms and the updated REI manual. And there's also a link for the CMS official YouTube channel where you can go to their YouTube and kind of do a search for the topic that you're looking for. And here's just an example of some of the different um, training videos that they have on different sections. So you can go to their YouTube channel and Google um, section B of the MDS and get the hearing, speech, and vision section and then watch videos on um, their training of those. So globally, there, there have been some changes to the MDS REI manual, not going to go through all of those in each and every section. Just know that throughout the manual, content has been updated to include general neutral language. And sometimes even today, probably when we're looking at the examples, I'll stumble over it a couple of times because it's not how we're used to seeing their um, examples, but they just did this in a way that to be gender neutral um, across the border. There's minor updates to wording to enhance better understanding. They've given additional examples um, to improve the clarity of the coding section. As we all know by this point, um, keys has been changed to iKeys, and there's been uh, revisions made pertaining to the legal information for family members, significant others, the um, representatives, just to provide consistency throughout all of the, the um, conversations. So there's been changes and revisions in chapter guidance to chapter one, two, and four. Not going to go through that, just drawing your attention to it. And then throughout this month, um, we're going to be taking all of the sections that have either have new or revisions in chapter three. So these are all the sections that have had some sense of change other than that general neutral or um, examples that have been given. So section A, identification information. 
So the intent for section A and almost all of this, if not all of it, has been taken right from the REI manual. So the um, font in red means that those have been changes, updates, things that are new. We I kept it that way just so that you could see the changes. And a lot of this I'm just going to, to read, and I don't mean to, to be reading the slides, but it's right from the REI. So it kind of, it is what it is. So the intent of section A is to obtain the reason for the assessment, the administrative information and the key demographic information to uniquely identify each resident, their potential care needs, including access to transportation, which is new for this section, and the home in which they reside. So here is what the, um, the types of assessment looks like. It has been changed and it only now is federally required and PPS assessments. So the optional state assessment has been removed from this and the optional state assessment for Pennsylvania will be discussed at a later time. Um, Pennsylvania will be pretty much continuing with all of the MDS assessments that we know now. And we'll talk about that more. So when we get, I think it's in three weeks when we start talking about section GG and I say section G has gone away, it really hasn't gone away, at least not for Pennsylvania. We have reached out to West Virginia to find out what they are going to do for the optional state assessment. And as of the end of last week, they still did not know. So we do not know yet if West Virginia will be following PDPM for their, for their MA case mix reimbursement or if they will be doing an optional state assessment. Once we hear that, we will work with uh, West Virginia Healthcare Association and make sure that you have that information. Pennsylvania has made the decision. They are doing the optional state assessment. And like I said, we will be having a separate webinar just for Pennsylvania on um, August 15th, and there'll be more information coming out with that when you get the slides and the recording for today's session. There'll also be um, registration for that uh, presentation. So what has changed in section A? So ethnicity has been expanded. So you're going to have your list of the, the typical no, not of Hispanic, Latino, Spanish. They've added Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban. Um, they've also added two additional um, sections, sec, um, responses. Response X means the re resident was unable to respond and Rex Response Y means resident declines to respond. So there's going to be an opportunity where you are going to, to check all that apply. So the most important thing is you're going to ask the resident what, did, what corresponds to their ethnicity. And whatever they say, that's what it is. But we also know that this and the race questions sometimes are sensitive questions so they've really worked on how is the best way that we can 
ask this question that makes the resident feel comfortable. And right here is a quote right from the RAI that states, we want to make sure that all our residents get the best care possible, regardless of their ethnic background. We would like you to tell us your ethnic background so that we can review the treatment that all residents receive and make sure that everyone gets the highest quality of care. So hopefully asking it in that way, if it's someone that you feel may be sensitive to, to these questions, um, that may be a better way to ask that question. So what can you use to code this? The, you can use the medical record um, if the resident is unable to respond and there's no family member present. If the resident declines to respond though, you have to code based on that. You can't code based on the family. So if the resident says, I don't wanna answer that, and their significant other says they're African-American, you can't code African-American. You have to code that the resident declines to respond. If the resident provides a response, then you check that box indicating what ethnic category or categories they identify as. Where you're gonna use the X is if the resident is unable to respond. So if the resident cannot respond, whether the family or significant other or representative answers for them, you still have to check that X as one of the options. If the resident's unable to respond and there's no other resources, then you would code X alone. And then you would code the Y, like we said, if resident declines to respond. So here are two examples. Resident R is admitted following an acute cerebrovascular accident with mental status changes and is unable to respond to questions regarding their ethnicity. Their spouse informs the nurse that resident, y, resident R is Cuban. So how would we answer this question? So we would code D, yes, that they're Cuban, and X, resident unable to respond. And that's because the resident R was unable to respond, but their family provided the response. So we code the family's response and code that the resident was unable to respond. Resident K is admitted following a total hip arthroplasty and declines to respond when asked their ethnicity. So how would we code this? We would code Y because the resident declined to respond and we would not use any other sources because the, the resident said they do not want to respond. And these examples are right from the RAI. There are more in there. I just pulled out a couple um, to show today. So then race, they also expanded this and you can see from the list, there are multitude of other options that are now um, available to choose from. It's, and why did, why was this? We, they wanted to standardize the self-reporting data collection across post-acute care settings. So they're trying to, the reason for all these changes this time is they're trying to make the assessments that are used in all post-acute care settings the same and interact and interchangeable. So whether they're going to assisted living, they're in long-term care or home care, they want the questions to be the same. So they've kind of combined them all together. The one thing that's important, they, of course, they give the example again of how you can introduce this question to an individual that may be sensitive to why are you asking what my race is. And it's also important to know that these 
answers and these categories that, that you're coding are not um, to determine eligibility for any participation in a federal program. It is simply how can we best provide the care for the resident based on their ethnicity and their race. So again, these coding things are the same as the ethnicity. You are going to ask them what race they associate with. If they're unable to respond, then we can ask the family or um, look at the medical record. If a family member provides that information for us, then we would code their response as well as coding X that the resident was unable to respond. And again, if the resident declines to respond, we would do Y. Whether the family answers or we can answer for them based on information, we would still code Y if the resident declines to respond. And if, then if we're not able to determine from any of the sources, then we would code Z. So examples for these are resident W has severe dementia with agitation. During the admission assessment, they are unable to provide their race. Their child informs the nurse that resident W is Korean and African-American. So how would we code this? So we would code three things. We would code that they were Black African-American. We would code that they are Korean. And we would code that the resident was unable to respond. Resident Q declines to provide their race during the admission assessment, stating, I'd rather not answer. So we would code this as why resident declines to respond. So the language section has been revised. Um, before we would say, does the, did the resident need an interpreter? Yes or no. Um, now they actually want us to put what is their preferred language and we have to type it in there. And then it says, do you need or want an interpreter to communicate with a doctor or healthcare staff? So the purpose of this, you know, is just to make sure that the resident clearly understands what's going on with their with their health care plan. So we want to make sure that we are communicating in their language. If the resident or family member um, does not identify a preferred language, then we have to dash that first box. However, we, we do need to realize that CMS expects that to be extremely rare extremely rare because we need to be able to communicate with the residents that we are serving. So we would code this with no if the resident um, does not want an interpreter, yes if they want an interpreter, and nine if we are unable to determine um, if they need or want an interpreter. Transportation, this is a whole new section and um, one that we're, you know, we're going to have to figure out who's going to ask this question and how are we going to document the responses to this. So the question is, has lack of transportation kept you from medical appointments, meetings, work, or from getting things needed for daily living? And the answer, and you're going to check all that apply, and it would be, yes, it has kept me from medical appointments or getting my medications. Yes, it has kept me from non-medical appointments, meetings, work, or from getting things that I need. No, it hasn't interfered. Or again, this X resident unable to respond and Y resident declines to respond. 
So the steps for this assessment is we're going to ask the resident in the past six months to a year, has lack of transportation kept you from those medical appointments or getting your medications or from the non-medical appointments or meetings or things that you need? Um, they should be offered to answer yes. They should be, if the resident is unable to respond, we can talk to the family member or their significant other. And then if only if the resident is unable to respond and there's no family member present, can we use the medical record documentation? And again, if the resident declines to respond, then we would not code based on what the family or the medical records has in place. So again, this is just a repeat that uh, we would code A for yes, it has kept me from my appointments and getting my medications. We would code B, yes, it's kept me from non-medical appointments. So again, it could be multiple um, choices. They could say that it's kept them from their medical appointments and it's kept them from their non-medical appointments. Um, we would code, code no C if um, there was no lack of transport, the lack of transportation has not kept them from getting to those things. And then again, X if they didn't respond and Y if they declined to respond. So here's an example. Resident E is in, admitted with multiple sclerosis. They are confused and unable to understand when asked if they have had a lack of transportation that has kept them from medical appointments, meetings, work, or from getting things needed for daily living. There's no family, significant other, or legally authorized representative with related information available, but their medical record indicates that their spouse uses their car to transport resident E wherever they need to go. So how would we code this? So we would code it as C, no, and X, that the resident was unable to respond. Um, two sections that have expanded is um, where has the resident entered from and where are they discharging to. And as you can see here from the list, a lot of different things have been added. They've added um, the short-term general hospital, the long-term care hospital, um, inpatient psychiatric, intermediate care facility, hospice from home, and hospice from an institutional. So we know that there's some facilities that have on-site hospice units. So that's where this hospice institutional facility would come from. Critical access hospital, um, home under the care of an organized home health service organization. And then we would have the deceased and not listed and it would go on to the next section then. Another new section is um, provision of current reconciled medication list to subsequent provider at discharge. Now there's going to be another one that says just a discharge. So the first one is um, if when you said that they were discharged, where did they go to? If they went to one of these locations, the skilled nursing facility, one of the hospitals, psychiatric hospitals and hospice, um, critical care um, hospital, they're going to want to know, have we provided a current reconciled medication list to the subsequent provider that's now going to be assisting in that person's care? 
So you can see how this has evolved. You know, the last time we had a big MDS change, they added that drug regimen review. Well, now they want to know, did we truly provide the medication list to the subsequent provider? We all do, but now we have to prove it. So you're going to have to make sure that you're looking at your facility processes for how you're going to prove that you provided that reconciled medication list to the subsequent provider. So we've already talked about the rationale. So the coding for this is no. If a discharge to a subsequent provider, your facility did not provide the resident's current uh, medication list and the resident was discharged to that provider, or we're going to code yes if a discharge to the subsequent provider, your facility provided the resident's current um, medication list. And this is all stuff that we've, we've already talked about. So the coding tips is, you know, it's important that we send that reconciled list so that they can um, continue their treatment. This can be done by a number of means. We can mail them electronically, verbally. We can do it through an electronic health record portal. Um, it's all in what your facility has set up for how you're going to get that information to the next level of care. So some examples, resident F was transferred to an acute care hospital with a reconciled medication list that included a list of their current medications, but with less additional information than is usually provided by the SNF at discharge because of the urgency of the situation. Some of the contraindications, as well as the resident's weight and height and dates of those were admitted from the medication list. So how would we code that we sent the reconciled medication list to the subsequent provider? We would code yes. So despite the fact that we maybe didn't send everything we typically send, we did send the, the list of reconciled medications. Resident J's Medicare Part A stay ended and they were transferred to a long-term care unit in the same nursing home. The IDT from the subacute unit staff provided and reviewed with the long-term care staff a reconciled medication list at the time of transfer. So we would code yes. So even if they're going in the same facility, but if they're going to a different set of caregivers, we still have to prove that we provided that um, reconciled med list to the, to the new care providers. And lastly, resident G's reconciled medication list was electronically faxed to the subsequent provider. And this action is documented in their clinical record. However, the subsequent provider's records do not show that the document was received successfully. How would we code that? we would still code it yes, because we sent it. And as long as we have documentation that they received it, it's not our responsibility to ensure that they have a successful receipt of that. Now, I would think if we're going to fax it, we would, we would want to have that. But as long as we can prove that we faxed it and we have documentation that it went through successfully, we have that. So then you're going to have to um, document how did you send that to the subsequent provider? Did you send it through EHR, through an information health exchange, verbally, paper, such as fax, copies, printouts, or other methods such as emailing or CDs? 
And we are going to do the same thing with a resident at discharge. So if the resident is being discharged, we still want to show that we provided the resident and or their caregivers a list of their current medications. Again, the same route of transmission. How did we do that? Did we give it to them in person, telephone, um, more than likely, it's probably not going to be electronic health record, but there are some that they, if they have access to their patient portals, we can do that. Um, so that's what we would do with that. So coding tips, um, it's going to be important to make sure that the route of transmission is, is usually established with each subsequent provider, depending on how they're able to retrieve the information from your facility. So if someone is going out to the hospital and they're going to hospital A, you know that you're always going to print out your uh, medication listing and send it with them. Or maybe you are attached to a hospital and you both have the EPIC system and you're going to say that, you know, if they're going to that hospital system, they can access it through EPIC. You're going to want to have that policy and procedure in place as a backup to help prove how are you submitting these med reconciliations to subsequent providers or when someone's discharged. Um, you there can always be more than one mode of transmission as well. So again, you're going to check all that apply, but those are, um, it's a good policy to put into place. So that was a very quick down and dirty of section A. And at this point, I think I will turn it back over to Casey and Kathy to see if we have any questions. Alrighty, let's start with those questions, Deb. The first one, will the webinar on the 15th be recorded for later viewing? Yes. Yes. Yep. The, yep. Perfect. And then the question on the language portion of section A, does language include sign language? So I am actually, I was hoping you would talk a little bit longer. I was, I was going to the REI to actually look for that. I do believe that that is... Um, so here it says an organized system of signing, such as American Sign Language, can be reported as the preferred language if the resident needs or wants to communicate in this manner. So yes, if their primary source of communication is sign language, we should put in um, a, a SL or American Sign Language, whatever will fit. Yes. Fantastic, Deb. That looks like all of our questions. Deb, thanks again for joining us today and presenting. We look forward to hearing from you next week again. And thank you all for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you, everybody. If you want to contact Deborah Wright, you can reach her at dwright at qualityinsights.org. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash qin slash multimedia 